This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Welcome to The Way I See It, a new series about modern art with me, Alistair Souk, in collaboration with MoMA, the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Each episode focuses on a single work selected from MoMA's permanent collection by a different guest. See behind her head how there's this kind of flickering light? Chosen from among the sharpest creative minds of our time. So it's a very kind of subtle effect and you don't even really know it's happening. All leaders in their fields. That is some serious nuance that I respect. (laughs) In this episode, though, we are bending the rules. One artwork, yes, but two guests. The brilliant contemporary artist Sarah Z, who you just heard there showing me at MoMA one of her poetic and precarious sculptures assembled out of hundreds of everyday objects. And her husband, Siddhartha Mukherjee, the oncologist or cancer treatment specialist and Pulitzer Prize winning author. Plus, two fellow travellers, curator Leah Dickerman and yours truly, making a grand total of four ways of seeing. When you look at that central form in particular, it's almost like, I don't know, is scrotal an adjective? It's very organic. There's phallic forms, there's vulva forms. Three hanging testicles with a face-like object. It could be any number of body parts. It could be the head, it could be the legs. What it actually is, is a particularly unsettling part of a sculpture by the French-born American artist Louise Bourgeois, who died in 2010, aged 98, having spent most of her life in New York. Bourgeois, who studied maths at the Sorbonne in Paris before turning to art, is probably best known for her monumental sculptures of gigantic, knobbly-kneed spiders. Some are called, rather frighteningly, maman, French for mummy. In fact, her surreal, eerie work often deals with domesticity and familial relationships and typically casts a long, dark, psychological shadow. And the sculpture chosen by Sarah and Siddhartha, or Sid, is no exception. Its title is Quarantania One, and it consists of a group of five vertical, totem-like, carved wooden forms, mostly painted white with a few flashes of light blue, huddled together on a low black plinth. Each one has an undeniably figure-like bodily presence, though, as we've heard, exactly which parts of the body they evoke is up for debate. Actually, if we were going to describe it, okay, balsa wood, white paint, black paint, blue paint... Ball, stick, four objects, three hanging. Well, that's one deliberately no-nonsense way of describing it, expressed by Sarah, who, as an artist, is naturally attuned to materials, shapes and form. But seeing is highly subjective, as I hope by now this series has amply demonstrated. So how does someone who isn't an artist, but a successful scientist and best-selling author, that's to say someone like Sarah's husband, Sid see the very same work. My descriptions are going to be anatomical. This was the way science was, biology was. Biology was taxonomy. The snail has these many worlds in its shell. That embryo turns rightwards, this part turns leftwards, the heart looks like this. Beautiful drawings came out of that. Vesalius comes out of that, obviously, and all his followers come out of that, but it was all descriptive. Wow, at a stroke we've gone from observations about balsa wood and white paint 
to the 16th century Flemish scientist and writer Andreas Vesalius, renowned as a pioneer of anatomy thanks to his massively influential book De Humani Corporis Fabrica. Oh, all right, I needed to look up a translation of the title, which means On the Fabric of the Human Body. So when I start my description, I would say, you know, on the left side there is a figure that's sized five feet four inches, which tapers down very narrowly and has a kind of oculus, an eye, which is only one eye, it's open, it's like a cyclops, but it's like a cyclops that's been put through the rack or a stretcher. You'll see that they're big sculptures. The third viewpoint, the perspective of MoMA curator Leah Dickerman, in conversation with me, an art critic for a national newspaper, providing way of seeing number four. Each of the five forms is a vertical, but they're not oversized, they're not larger than a human being. In fact, I think among all the personages that she made, and she made these works, she called them personages, the average is about 5'4", which I like. Is that true? I didn't know that. Which is kind of woman size. We know from photographs of her apartment and even the galleries that she showed in that she would position these personage forms in different conversational groupings as if they were friends. Actually, it's interesting because as I remember it, it was leaning against a wall. Mm-hmm. It was sort of very haphazardly, almost as if it was a bunch of umbrellas in a corner, right on the verge of falling over. But it's interesting because here, it's on a pedestal and arranged in this very sort of strict, symmetrical manner. As you've been talking so far, you've been referring to sculptures plural. And I'm assuming that you're not referring to the wider series of personages. You're looking at these five. I mean, is there a sense that in another existence back in the 40s or 50s when she made them, they might have existed in a different grouping? Yes, that's exactly right. It's later that she assembled them and put them on the platform. So in their earlier lives, each of these were individual objects. And she came back to it later in the 80s and she reassembled this group on a base. And one of the things about these five vertical forms, these analogues for people, as you say, is that there's one in the middle and the four around are sort of herding around, almost like they're protecting the one in the middle, turning their backs to the outside world. It makes me think of those sort of natural history documentaries where Mm -hmm. you see the adult animals, the bison, protecting the young one from (laughs) the lions or something. Um, I'm not sure how many lions these days really hunt bison. Aren't they typically found in North America? I think I meant to say... African buffalo. You see, galleries, not the Serengeti, they're more my natural habitat. I always thought, well, that there's something that's very bulbous and organ-like about them. So it's almost as if it's the outside of the human or the inside of the human on the outside. An idea that, I'll be honest, instinctively makes my hands hover protectively in front of sensitive parts of my anatomy. And talking of instinct, in general, as a critic... I have an urge to contextualise works of art like Quarantania 1 by looking at them through the prism of the biographies of the artists who made them. Interestingly enough, it's exactly the sort of approach that Sarah and Sid are keen to avoid. Everyone talks about her life, and she did it herself, so she framed it that way. But in some ways I thought it would be interesting not to talk about it her. But it's interesting that when we start describing, we start describing literal parts, we go to the narrative. I think it's interesting to try and try on... The, the, to resist the to narrative. Resist the yes, narrative. and that's, what we, that's actually what you've Which been is, doing, right? First of all, that's what you've been doing with this, and also perhaps to some extent both of us have been doing with our work separately to try to lie outside the narrative box. I mean, part of the problem, I think, of creative life today 
is that the narrative boxes have become extraordinarily seductive. Narrow. This is something I've grappled with throughout this series. As your guide, how much historical and biographical context would you like me to provide? Personally, I find it fascinating to learn that Bourgeois once said that her totemic painted wooden figures or personages had nothing to do with sculpture, but were rather, as she put it, manifestations of homesickness for her life in Paris, which she left behind in 1938, the same year she started making the things, after marrying the American art historian Robert Goldwater and moving to New York. I also find this idea utterly compelling, that the shape of the elongated wooden forms of Quarantania I, which on closer inspection resemble sewing needles or even traditional wooden weaving shuttles, well, they may be linked to the business of bourgeois parents who ran a Parisian workshop restoring antique tapestries. There we go, parents and children again. But then maybe I risk seeing this sculpture exclusively through the lens of what I've read, and I'm sure I could learn a lot by listening to the way a scientist sees the same work of art. What gave the information for each of these forms to become these forms? Why does this one look like this while its neighbour looks like the other? The organismal answer that we've figured out now is because there is a code behind all of this. Each of these objects, each of these personages has a biography, but you don't know what the biography is because it's inside. It's, if you were to use the contemporary word, it's in its DNA. Basically, actually I rephrase it as like a bag of information, like because if you think of it as we know so much more that we are an instruction or a code. In fact, if we landed from Mars, this is how we would begin the description. We encounter a life form which has you know, these characteristics and we don't exactly know what. But the next thing that you would ask is, what made it that way? Why did this thing become this way? And what parts of that code are registering with me? What parts of it become mine? How do I understand it? What is the meaning behind each of that code? And that's what happened in biology and medicine as well, is that in the 1950s and 1960s, we switched away from the form of a piece, as it were, this anatomy, that oculus, that nose, to asking question, what was the driving force behind the formation of those? And again, this switch from form to information is the central question of our times. And to me, this piece brings it up. Why are these like this? What made those bodies like that? What was the code? What code was she following? And I feel like her work has very much that feeling, that you read the body as information from the inside. It's always as if she's torn apart out of the body and placed it into an exposed place that it shouldn't be. And then it has this longing and the slight like violence of being exposed, I find, this kind of interior ripped out. And then not being whole, that it's always missing something, that's always a part to a whole. And so it's always the what's not there that becomes the issue. But this idea that a whole would be made not from a built sculptural sort of outside to in, but it would literally appear from the inside out. The violence of being exposed. That's a really powerful way of describing the emotional effect of this sculpture with its cluster of standing sentinel-like forms as elongated as spindly white fingers, including one that's decked out with all of those squashy-looking organic pouches that seem to hang from this central figure's waist, like medieval money bags from a belt. Those are the things, by the way, that all four of us at the start of this episode were trying to describe. Look at someone else's art and you immediately learn 
everything they're doing and you can figure out what you're doing in relation and how you want to do it. So it speeds up the entire process. And in science, this is always the case, right? You would always read what your peers are doing in order to move through and, and wide, as I, let's say, let's say up, but right? So this idea, if you imagine yourself as an artist, as a, as a group of thinkers, rather than individuals who make room for each other. I think that is important because there's a myth with art that you're working in isolation yeah. and that you have moments of inspiration. I do think that there's a point in the process where the work starts speaking back to you. And there is a moment that, for me, totally alone with my work, where in the process after it not working, not working, the work starts to tell me and speak back to me. And the enti- every decision is entirely in the moment. I do think that that moment is what makes work strong. Very much so in the sciences yeah. as well, right? I mean, you know, people, it's a very commonly used phrase, the experiment is talking back to you. Well, in this case, it's Louise Bourgeois' sculpture Quarantania One that's talking back to us. Because ultimately, it's a sculpture about human relationships, with those five figure-like forms grouped together like a bunch of people having a chat. What are they saying? The conversation ebbs and flows, much like this episode, which reminds us that our relationships with works of art are always defined as much by what we bring to them as by the works themselves. You can see the one in the centre that has these strange bulbous appendages hanging from her hips. And she spoke of those as evoking her children, her three little boys. Oh, so that's hair in the middle yeah. with the boys. Yeah. I think, didn't I say it was scrotal? <laughs> yes. I, I take that back now. <laughs> Never trust an art critic. On the narrative <laughs> point, I've heard that those are her children. But we're not doing narrative. <laughs> not doing narrative. <laughs> yeah. No biography. <laughs> You've been listening to The Way I See It with me, Alistair Souk. You can hear more episodes from this series by searching for The Way I See It on BBC Sounds.